This is the Darcy Drill Podcast, episode 26. Today my guest is Tim Mullen, firefighter, paramedic, and liberty expert. Today we're going to be talking about medically assisted suicide, or MADE, in Canada. Tim Mullen, welcome back to the Darcy Drill Podcast. How are things? It's and things are going all right, man. It's just, uh, you know, this past year has been a blur. I've been uh, burying my head in work, just working a ton of overtime thanks to our crumbling health system, you know, picking up a lot of overtime paramedic shifts um, because, uh, you know, softer men just don't want to work in this toxic environment anymore. <laughs> so us hard guys are ha- having our time to shine now that everything's falling apart. Uh, you know, like they say, hard times make hard men. So bring them on, baby. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I've, you know, I'm still alive and kicking. I've kind of, uh, dropped off the, you know, out of the public light for a little bit, focus on family and, and paying bills and stuff like that. So, um, you know, I'm hoping to reemerge from my kind of hiatus here over the next year or two and, and get some other projects going. But, uh, um, yeah, good. Glad to, glad to be on the Darcy Drew show. I'm guessing yeah. this is probably close to your Christmas show. Hey. Happy holidays, happy Christmas, yeah. Merry Christmas, even. That's right, Merry happy Christmas. Happy Jesus's birth. Yeah, piss yeah. off some liberals. Huh? <laughs> yeah, I don't think there. I don't think any of them will listen. Anyone who gets offended by Merry Christmas no. won't be listening to this. Um. <laughs> so yeah, you're busy at work, and so that's why I wanted to have you on again. Big news these days is uh, medical assistance in dying in Canada. Yeah. Um. You know, it's something I'm not that familiar with. Um, I do know there's a few numbers that I've looked at just doing some reading for this episode, which is like, it went up from like a thousand medically assisted deaths in 2016 when they first changed the legislation, and it's up over 10,000 now. And they're looking well, at changing. It's, it's, it's even more than that. In total, since the legislation was changed, there's been something like uh, over 31,000 deaths from assisted suicide, and uh, which makes up, I think, 3.3% of all deaths in Canada are now um, state-assisted suicides, which it, I found like a startling number, right? Mm-hmm. But, oh, yeah. it is. So, again, this is this is one of those issues, you know, a lot like when we talked about abortion that in some ways on the surface there's good faith arguments on both sides mm-hmm. and i would say that more so if we had an actual free market in healthcare the the uh good faith argument in favor of it would be uh more understandable but again once the state and the government's involved in this stuff it it seems to me like there's a lot of you know, ethical contradictions in place. So maybe you can speak to that a little bit. Sure. Well, I'll just give you a little bit of my background on, on the subject. You know, I remember in the early nineties, uh, the Sue Rodriguez case was making a lot of waves and Sue Rodriguez was this woman in BC. I think she was in her early forties. Um, she was diagnosed with uh, Lou Gehrig's disease, ALS, 
um, which is a degenerative and hor- horrific disease that that causes certain death within, I think, five years or something like that in most cases. Although Stephen Hawking's lived nearly 50 years with it for some unbeknownst reason. I guess his brain just kept him alive, that giant brain of his. But um, but she she made the headlines because she was fighting for the right to die with on her own terms with dignity, right? And I remember at the time, you know, I had no real political ideology. I hadn't given a lot of thought, but but the case really troubled me. It, it created some cognitive dissonance in my mind because on the one hand, I thought, man, what a horrible way to ha- to have to die, um, you know. And and as a younger Christian guy, I was I was conflicted because I was like, well, you know, she should at least be able to alleviate her suffering, but at the same time you know, all life is precious and, and sacrosanct. And, and so, you know, I, I, I was conflicted about it, but at the end I thought, well, you know what, she should probably have the right to die. And then of course, later, as I thought about things more clearly and philosophically, um, I realized that, you know, the, the real question isn't what my opinion is about it. It's what Sue Rodriguez's, uh, Rodriguez's opinion is. I, I don't have any ownership claim over her. Um, I don't uh, have the right, even if I win a popularity contest and call myself the government, to point guns at people uh, and, and say, I will kill you if you help her uh, with her wishes, Right. And I mean, yeah. if, if I believe in this, in, in the sacrosanctity of life, the very first thing should be, I should remove threats of violently killing someone off the table. And so, so of course, as a libertarian, I support, uh, the right to self-ownership. I may not agree with your decision, uh, to, to, um, want to kill yourself, but I have to, uh, avoid using violence. I don't even have to respect your, your, decision, but I do have to not use violence to, uh, prohibit you from, from doing what you want with your own damn body. Right. And then, you know, there, there, there are other kind of, uh, uh, I guess difficult situations then when, when you hold that view as well, right? Like in my job as a paramedic, I regularly intervene in people trying to kill themselves you know, we get mental health calls all the time. And, and of course, those <laughs> those are ramping up, uh, you know, over the past two years, given the the uh, prevalence of the covid regime, uh, immiserating everyone in their lives. Um, but, you know, it, I, I can make a libertarian case for um, intervening and, and stopping, like forcibly stopping someone in the moment from killing themselves. Uh, if I have good reason to believe that they lack capacity, right? So in other words, if someone lacks capacity, uh, just like I can stop my kid, use force to stop my kid from running out into the middle of the road um, because they lack capacity, uh, just like I can administer treatments to someone who's unconscious um, because they lack capacity and take them into my care and, and put needles in them and, and do aggressive airway maneuvers. You know, my goal is to deliver them to a future state when they have capacity. Um, but what we're talking about here is something, something much different. This isn't in someone having a, uh, a, um, psychotic break and having an impulse, a sudden impulse to kill themselves that they normally wouldn't have. And that if they were in their right mind, they would never do. Uh, this is someone who is, has thought out the consequences in theory is, has full capacity is making a reasonable decision 
um, and is showing or, or at least showing evidence that they have capacity. So in, certainly in those cases, I don't think anyone should have the right to intervene in someone wanting to kill themselves. Now, uh, the moral conundrum comes in when we have uh, the state step in and provide these services. And, we, you know, we can talk about uh, why that is. I'm actually writing an article right now and uh, it might be out by the time this this uh, podcast is published. If you go to timmoen.net, you, you can see uh, my writing there. But I'm kind of thinking my way through this this topic by writing this article because we're seeing some really troubling things emerging in in Canada around MAID, right? You know, there's been at least six veterans now, including one Paralympian who, when they call the Veterans Affair Office looking for some support and like a wheelchair ramp or or just something have been offered. Oh, and by the way, if your life is is that terrible, uh, we can offer you assistance in dying. Right. So so the, the message from our government, the, the people that have broken these veterans uh, by ordering them into, um, you know, things in, into harm's way, basically, are now uh, not only providing the support that that they need, they're actually offering the, to kill them to end, end the misery that they're in. And, and so that's obviously super troubling. Right. And, you know, there's been been. Um, a number of cases, you know, the other another one that really uh, disturbed me was I remember in uh, last year in 2021, there was a 90 year old uh, granny who uh, who chose assisted suicide rather than facing another nursing home lockdown. Right. She just couldn't live her, her life her physical health, her mental health, everything declined during lockdown because she was a very social person. She needed to be surrounded by family and friends and be active. And of course, the state um, mandates put her in isolation and she deteriorated very quickly. Then she recovered somewhat uh, when they lifted the lockdowns, but then facing another lockdown where she couldn't see her family when she, she, she decided I'd rather die. And of course the state was glad to help her with that. And, uh, her family was, you know, then she was able to see her family and be surrounded by loved ones in her last moments when she wasn't able to do that when she was alive. So I think that perfectly kind of encapsulates how, uh, the state, um, you know, immiserates lives and then offers you, uh, offers to kill you. Right. And, and so, um, there, I th- think there are serious moral issues when the organization that immiserates your life then provides you escape from that misery by killing you, right? It's kind of like the old Harry Brown qu- quote, like the, the government's good at one thing, breaking your legs, offering you a crutch, and then demanding thanks and praise for offering you that crutch, right? And yeah. so that's kind of where we're at with uh, with assisted suicide. Yeah. So they, they break your leg, offer you a crutch. If you complain about the crutch, they offer to kill you. Like that's where we're right, at now, right? Right, <laughs> right, right. Man, I shouldn't laugh, but it's uh, it's hard. The the one about the veterans is seems doubly heinous to me because you do have these people that you know are um, engaged to put their lives on the line and face injury and death in their service, and then because of a lot of the trauma involved with that they do come back with uh mental you know 
I don't know the most politically correct word to say it, but I mean, when we're talking about PTSD and they have some issues they have to resolve. Sure. And then to, you know, anybody in that sort of situation to then offer them assisted suicide, it seems, it seems, it seems absolutely crazy, you know? Yeah. Well, it, 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 you know, the message it sends too is atrocious, right? I mean, these are people that are suffering, they're desperately looking for help to 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 and support uh, for the suffering that that they're in, uh, you know, and a lot of it is psychological, but also physical, um, and and it, it wouldn't take much to support them, you know, an encouraging word, uh, you know, some love around them, some um, you know, some uh, funds to help them buy a wheelchair ramp, or just little things to 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 make their life a little bit more. Um, a little bit more pleasant to live and Mm -hmm. they're not asking for much and uh, they're not getting it right. And in part they're not getting it because, um, you know, the government has a monopoly on, on that, uh, loving nurturing and, and healthcare. Right. So, so we, we have not only an or the same organization that's immiserating their lives, uh, offering to kill them, but it's also the same organization that prohibits anyone else from improving their lives, from making their lives worth living, from from uh, giving them support and value, um, you know. And again, you know, I think I've t- I've talked a little bit about um, prohibitions on healthcare with you before. You know, when COVID happened, when when it first started, and you know, before we knew really knew what it was about, you know, on the front lines, I was dealing with a lot of seniors who were scared to come out of their homes. They, and a lot of seniors who were immobile and couldn't get to their family doctor, family doctor, family physicians offices were closed. Um, and, and there was people suffering at home with their, their chronic health problems who could have really used some support and some help. And I had spent a year working on a community paramedic program where, you know, paramedics in your community go into your home and provide that support, provide diagnostic testing, do blood testing, facilitate prescriptions with your primary care physician, um, deal with your urgent care needs, things that are that need to be addressed urgently, but don't need to go to an emergency department and clog up the emergency department. Uh, things that would normally be dealt with with a family doctor, but because of mobility issues or, or just fear, you can't see your doctor. Um, you know, th- I could have rolled this out immediately and provided all sorts of value and help for these people. But of course, course, I'm as a healthcare worker in Canada, I'm prohibited from doing almost anything I could do for, for people to help them out. I can only work for the state. And then my job with the state, when I work for the state, my job isn't patient care. I, I don't get judged or critiqued on that unless I screw up really badly. I get judged and critiqued on um, my paperwork. And yeah. so my my whole you know time with the patient the good majority of it is spent doing this paperwork collecting data for the state so they can more easily centrally plan uh, and and redistribute funds uh with their elite brains right yeah. and so my my job is to do that and so actually you know it takes me like 45 minutes to complete this paperwork and so while I'm with the patient, when they're asked, making requests, like, can you, can you put my head up? Can you give me something for pain? Can you, you know, they, they have demands, right? They have things they would like. Well, that, that actually interferes with my job of producing paperwork for the state. And so, you know, this shows up in healthcare culture all the time. Um, it, it's probably 10 times worse for nurses even 
because their whole job is to do ticky boxes, to fill out paperwork, to write copious notes, to, you know, do all that kind of stuff. And so these demanding patients who are <laughs> just looking to, to have a little bit of uh, symptom relief are getting in the way constantly. And it, and it can kind of make you, it can kind of, um, make the patient seem like a pain in the ass rather than someone who you're really connected with, who you're trying to help. Right. And, and so, so this culture of statism, um, infiltrates everything we do as healthcare practitioners. It can't help, but do that. Um, you know, uh, and, and so in the end, it turns out that, that like the, the way we get ahead at work is not by providing extra value to the, to patients, right? Um, we, we often do that despite the system, but every incentive in the system is set up to minimize work for us to minimize work. The less work we have to do, the further ahead we are. That's, that's how we profit in the system is by minimizing the amount of work. Um, and, and in a normal free market system, we get ahead by maximizing value. You know, it's how well did we serve the patient? Like our employer would be very interested to see what patient surveys say, how, how was, how do they feel their treatment was? How, how were they treated by, you know, were they treated with respect and with, um, you know, what, what was their patient experience like? What were the outcomes and metrics like? Those are the things that, that we would care about if we were interested in maximizing value. And of course, this, of course, the state doesn't measure any of those because it's not interested in maximizing value. And, and as employees of the state, um, you know, it's very hard to resist lining up with the state's incentives, which are get this paperwork done and minimize the work you got to do and and um, that sort of thing. So so now we're looking to minimize work and where this plays into it, you know, I, you know, again, I have a personal experience with this. My mom, um, when she was kind of in her, her final months of living she was she was really suffering she and she was a demanding patient and you know i'm convinced that um that it it was uh what what i would call the nocebo effect that essentially killed her and and the nocebo effect is like the placebo effect you've heard of the placebo effect right darcy which yeah, is yeah. that you know if if you take a pill that is say a sugar pill but you believe it will it will help you. It'll, it'll improve your symptoms or even cure you. Well, quite often it will. The mind is very powerful and it can, can help heal you and cure you. If you have a strong positive belief that, that this treatment will. Well, my mom was the exact opposite. There was always something wrong, you know, for, for decades, she, she was always fixated on something that was wrong with her and convinced that there was something wrong and these would manifest as real symptoms and real issues. And eventually, you know, she felt there was something wrong with her abdomen, her guts, her, her bowels or something like that. You know, the surgeons and doctors ran every test, did every imaging thing you could imagine, couldn't find anything wrong. Uh, but yet she, she was in constant pain, constant uh, suffering because she was convinced there was something wrong. And eventually they did like some surgical interventions as a last ditch effort to try because she was basically starving to death. She couldn't eat because it hurt her guts too much. And, um, and, and in the hospital, you know, the, she was just demanding, like she needed pain medication. She needed to be moved and repositioned. She needed help with this or that. And 
the nurses, nursing staff are run off their feet. I mean, they have all these check marks to do. They have all this stuff to do for the state. And so this is a real ha- hassle, right? And and so one of the nurses um, came to me and just kind of pulled me inside and said, look, you know, maid is a thing now. You, you, we can alleviate the suffering if, if she wants by offering her assisted suicide. And I understood where it was coming from. I mean, in a, in a sense, the, the nur- nurse's hands were tied. But also, I couldn't help but think this is just a symptom of a goddamn toxic, horrible system that should be able to um, treat this patient psychically, right? Like psychologically, there, there should be some support for and, and I have to believe in a free market where there's all sorts of healthcare workers looking to maximize value rather than minimize work, that there would be some solutions for my mom in that situation that weren't that, that weren't death, you know, and by the way, suicide would have gone against her, you know, very principal and core of her being as a, as a, you know, Christian woman who believed in the sanctity of life. And yet she was almost thinking about it because these, these bastards that <laughs> have left her no choice almost. Yeah. Right. And so, so, you know, again, I, I raised the point of the incentive to minimize work rather than maximize value, because that's what that nurse was under the impression. Now, in March, this coming March, the the MAID program is being expanded by legislation to include mental illness, right? Mm -hmm. So we've already had a few of these barriers knocked down um, in terms of who can get MAID. Um, In the past, there was very solid barriers. The death had to be foreseeably, foreseeably, uh, naturally foreseeable. Okay. So in other words, it had to be, this person had to essentially be, have a chronic illness where the death was naturally foreseeable. Could be a few months, could be a year, but as long as you could make the case that this person was going to die soon, they could, they could have made, well, a, a couple, uh, patients in Quebec challenged that, um, that, that legislation constitutionally and the Supreme Court of Quebec ruled that that was an unconstitutional requirement, that it shouldn't be just a foreseeable death. It should be. And, you know, I, I would agree with that ruling as a libertarian. Yeah, a person should have the right to, to die, even if their death isn't naturally foreseeable. Um, interestingly enough, the, the, one of the I shouldn't laugh about this. This is this is horrific. But one of the, the patients, I'm just trying to remember the name here. I have it written down. Um uh, okay, I don't have it right here. But one of the people that that brought this constitutional challenge had multiple sclerosis and bumped up that and after the victory um, um, was planning to die like later down the road, you know, this lady wanted time to spend with family and friends and, and, and enjoy it. But ironically, the COVID lockdown ruined that it basically removed from this person their ability to see family and friends. So they bumped up their, their, the date of their suicide by like five months or something like that because, uh, the state again, immiserated their lives. And, and so, um, so, so yeah, my point is now, now we're, so we've dropped this, uh, naturally foreseeable death, uh, barrier and, and now we were dropping as of March, the, uh, mental health barrier. In other words, now you can you can uh, apply for assisted suicide if you just have a mental health issue, yeah. right? And yeah. and you're suffering. So, 
So, I mean, you know, my, here's where my mind goes as a paramedic, you know, and, and again, the, the healthcare system is, is terrible right now. Um, all sorts of opiate, uh, overdoses and mental health issues. And I'm thinking of a typical night shift downtown Edmonton on the weekend when I'm picking up, um, the same overdose patient I've seen for the past <laughs> two years, again, overdosing and, 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 you know, you can't help but think this person would just be better off not living. Like w w what kind of quality of life are they having? I'm constantly seeing them over and over again. The state is enabling this behavior by giving them all sorts of handouts, giving them free health care, giving them free paramedic care, sometimes yeah. multiple times a shift because they keep overdosing after we Narcan them and they go back and want another hit. Um, I mean, these people are obviously going to die. And their death is actually naturally foreseeable. I mean, you can pretty much predict that within the next two or three years, this person's going to die anyways. Why not just end their misery now? And I can I can make a justification in my mind mm -hmm. if I want to uh, that this person would be better off. Getting, and, and I could probably convince that person that, you know what, they'd be better off dead. Like and, and you know what? It would save me a bunch of work and it would save the healthcare system a bunch of work and it would make everyone better off. I could make that justification in my mind. And that's what scares the shit out of me yeah, is yeah. because now more and more it, it's becoming far more easy for those of us who are in this system where our incentive is to minimize work and we see all this human suffering everywhere to authentically believe that we're doing these people a favor by offering them an end to their misery, the misery that the system that we're a part of is imposing on them. And, um, that's where, you know, I have a real issue with, with state assisted suicide. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. So, I mean, there's a few things that come to mind for me on that. Um, one of them is that, you know, expanding the, this to include a mental illness when, you know, suicidal tendencies are often just a byproduct of a mental illness and the mental illness right. is possibly treated. Right. I mean, the, right. yeah, well, go ahead. Well, well, I mean, the, here, here's what, and here's what the devil's advocate is going to say against that, right? They're going to say, look, we're not, we're not doing this for people who are impulsively suicidal. We know that those people need supportive care. They need help through their, 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 uh, you know, psychiatric break here and, and need to be brought to the other side of it. But what's happening in Canada is that, okay, so, so the made laws don't require that healthcare practitioners uh, participate in this, uh, program. Okay. So if, if it's, if I'm a conscientious objector and, or I don't feel comfortable providing, um, assisted suicide, I don't have to as a healthcare provider. Uh, although that is also questionable because, um, there are reports coming out from doctors saying that, um, that these maid providers, these physicians that actually do the maid service are refusing to assume transfer of care, as the most responsible physician for this patient. So in other words, this doctor and, and doctors are required by law if they, if they are an objector to assisted suicide to refer that person to some, to another physician who does support assisted suicide. Right. Mm -hmm. So, so they're made to uh, essentially assist this person anyways, albeit in an indirect way. And in a lot of cases, they're still, the most responsible physician on that person's chart, making them complicit essentially in that patient's death against their own conscientious, well, against their own conscience. So there's a lot of physicians that are, that are really upset by that thing. But, yeah. um, 
But what what's happening now is that that we're getting the, a lot of uh, people start essentially made practices. Okay, so they're essentially experts who are starting to make a living assisting assisting in suicide. They're becoming experts at this stuff. And it would be very easy if you ran an enterprise like that funded by the state uh, uh, to to find to to find ways to justify bringing um, patients into or or, or clients into your practice that uh, a normal healthcare practitioner would never consider. And so we're no doubt, and and we're already, we've already seen some of this. Um, There there was a case in BC. uh, I'm trying to remember the name here. Uh, uh, He, anyways, he, he, he was a psychiatric patient. He had mental health issues and his family was aghast that someone signed off on assisted suicide for him. And and basically within 48 hours, this guy was dying what was, you know, was killed by the state. Mm. Um, there, there was a psychiatric nurse, um, who was never had any like psychiatric problems in the past. She, she suffered, never suffered anxiety, depression, anything like that. But she, she sustained a concussion in a car accident and then had all sorts of like debilitating health effects from that. Couldn't, couldn't see specialists and, um, finally got someone to sign off on made for her because she was just denied access to care. Couldn't get it. And, and, you know, living with pain is, is, uh, you know, it, psychologically difficult to do. Right. And, yeah. and within 48 hours again, she was dead and her daughters opened up an RCMP investigation. But of course, uh, you know, there's no criminal activity because it's part of legislation now. So <clears throat> my point is you're going to see, um, very quickly, while most physicians would never prescribe made or never sign off on made for someone with with deep depression or something like that, there are going to be those that will that will certainly mm-hmm. do that and will believe in that. And and so you're, you're going to be, you know, killing all sorts of people who might you might say lack some capacity because they haven't been given alternatives to alleviate their suffering because yeah. healthcare practitioners are prohibited that's right you know start to die off yeah um because of this right and so it's it, it's a real real uh, slippery slope and and of course because legislation protects healthcare practitioners who engage in this um there's no real liability here that there would be in a free market. If, mm-hmm. if I was, uh, a trigger happy, uh, death doctor, let's say in a free market, <laughs> um, I, I might be, um, subject to heavy liability if it turns out that I'm killing off people that, um, that lack some capacity to rash reasonably make this decision and who, have treatment where, where there's treatment options available and their suffering could be alleviated another way. Right. Yeah. Or if, if, if I give them the impression even that, Hey, there's no other options available for you other than made, I would be held certainly criminally liable in a free market system. But I suspect this kind of thing is going to happen all the time and is already happening. 
patients are being told that there's no options available for him. And that might be true because of the goddamn state. Um, (laughs) Or it might not be true. You know, they might be able to get options in the States or, you know, there might be something out there, but they're being told there's no other option. This is the best option for you. And these people aren't going to, you know, these people that are delivering the death blow aren't going to be suffering any kind of ill effect or, or, or be responsible for the consequences of their decision, even though they're ruining families, destroying lives and literally killing people. So, yeah. Yeah. Well, it is a slippery slope, especially once they bring in this idea of mental illness, because that, that is something that is constantly been in flux also. And there's, there's always different definitions. And then, you know, there's the idea, and I don't want to sound too conspiratorial here, but there is there is a lot of people who would expand the definition of mental illness or do today to different things like political ideology and, you know, maybe people who are, right. you know, um, dissidents in some way or, or whatever. I mean, that, that has to be a, a concern because if you look at people who don't share your opinions as being mentally ill, and, uh, you know, and then all of a sudden the state's in charge of some of this stuff. I mean, I, I, I don't want to sound right. crazy I, I, saying I, I, that, but it is, but expanding <laughs> that, that definition of mental illness also, once it's, once it's in this program is, is a definite possibility. Sure. And what, what are you going to do with say, uh, transgender individuals or people with gender dysphoria who might've had some, uh, radical surgical altering procedure as as teens or or even preteens went before their mind was fully rational and and now they're suffering mentally because of it yeah. right so now here we have state sanctioning and funding for uh, the immiseration of of minors essentially um, and, and now <laughs> you you could I mean if I were one of these made doctors, I could easily make the case that, yeah, this is irreparable harm. They're, they're never going to get better. They're always going to be suffering from this debilitating, um, you know, debilitating mental health issues. Um, and, and so let's, let's kill them. Right. So it's just a troubling, you know, I can't stress enough how, how horrible it would be to, you know, and, and look in a free market, um, we certainly made services would be available, but they wouldn't be provided by the same institution that immiserated your life, right? Mm-hmm. So if I were a, a business or a corporation or or just a, a single practitioner, and I spent, you know, months and years just making someone's life absolutely miserable, right? Mm-hmm. Prohibiting them from getting the care they want through force, um, locking them and confining them in their home through force, um, taking away all the joy in their life through force, through gun violence. And then I offer them and and then I'm offering to kill them at the end, uh, for a fee. Uh, no one in their right mind would say that that would be in any way ethical or allowed in a, in a marketplace that would be highly illegal, but that's exactly what is happening here. Um, in, in our, wonderful country of Canada. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. So, okay. Let's look a bit more at the, at the free market approach to something like this too, because, uh, like you made the case earlier as a libertarian, it's, it's not really a up to yourself to decide what somebody else is going to do. And, and the reality is people do have 
you know, I don't, I wouldn't call it a right, but they are perfectly capable of killing themselves if they want to. I mean, and it sure. happens, sadly enough, it happens all the time. Um, you know, and in some ways, even somebody who is simply suicidal, uh, for whatever reason, you know, there is, I think there's also a case to be made that, uh, they would have they they would have access to this type of treatment in a free market or or do you not see that as being the case no i think there certainly would be um that th- they would have access to things yeah. like this um you know but i i also think that uh there would be a lot of scrutiny on on people doing this and there would be the, the difference in a free market is that the the people delivering this service would have um an incredible amount of responsibility that they would have to own, mm-hmm. right? Because if they got it wrong, if there was any sign of coercion or um, even encouragement, um, the, they, their lives would be ruined um, by that. They would, there would be an incredible amount of liability. So from that, from that incentive structure, you would expect to emerge all sorts of safeguards and best practices and, and things like that emerge so that, um, they don't get these things wrong. Right. And I suspect that also given that there would be all sorts of, um, of options available to people in a marketplace, right? Like people trying avant-garde experimental things, or that there would be all sorts of hope in the market right now. A lot of these experiments would no doubt be duds, but the, the very fact that there's hope out there, that there are people, because there there is no prohibition on people trying things, trying to innovate, mm-hmm. trying new things, trying you know things that that are very innovative. There would be an abundance of hope in a system like that, instead of an abundance of hopelessness, which is what we have now under these this prohibitive state mandated and run healthcare system. Um, so so I suspect there would be less demand. Uh, from people who are simply, you know, like grannies who didn't want to be isolated during a pandemic, they could find a nursing home that was willing to roll the dice that 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 catered to their risk tolerance, right? Mm-hmm. That that said, listen, some look living life fully to the l- limit is a risky endeavor, right? You you risk dying early, but <laughs> some people would prefer that rather than living in a isolated, hermetically sealed matrix pod. Um, that's completely safe, but <laughs> also completely devoid of joy, right? So you, you, the market provides for both those extremes and everything in between. And so this granny would, ha- would be able to be surrounded by family and friends. And if that's what she, she wanted, that option would be available to her rather than this one homogenous state imposed rule of we need to protect all old people from death by ensuring that they don't live uh, joyful lives. Right. And so, uh, you know, so, so those options would be available. So, so yeah, I, I suspect that in a marketplace, um, you know, most of the, the, the deaths dealt would be from people who are suffering unbearably, who's naturally, whose death is naturally foreseeable in the not too distant future. Um, and probably in the very near future, because look, if we're, you know, one, one of the things that immiserates people right now is the unwillingness or that the reticence of healthcare practitioners to overly administer opiates right now, 
I understand where that's coming from. You know, people, you, you could make the, the argument that the overprescription of opiates in our industrial medical system, let's say, where doctors are incentivized to get you in and out of the door really quickly has created an epidemic as well, you know. But when people are at the end of their lives, look, they need, we, we have the technology to make them comfortable, to end their suffering, to provide pain relief. But we're kind of hesitant to do that. And we're kind of in a lot of ways prohibited from doing that as healthcare practitioners because of this concern of overuse of opiates. And so, uh, you know, again, having proper palliative care. So, so if a person's comfortable and able to squeeze out another couple weeks of living surrounded by family and friends, I have to believe that they would choose that rather than just end their misery because they're not getting proper management for their suffering uh, by the healthcare practitioners. So, you know, uh, I, I believe that would be there. But, you know, th th there's th – this is kind of a – it's on a continuum, right? Because I've, I've gone to calls where people are basically on their deathbed. They're going to die in the next day or two and th they're looking for some help, some support, some symptom relief. And, you know, I'm very honest with the patient, with the family. Look, I can provide you with symptom relief, but just be aware this uh, medication I give you could shorten your life. It could take you down from days to hours to live. OK, so I want you to be very I want to be very clear. And, and a lot of most of the time they say, yeah, please, I just want some, you know, end of suffering. Now, you could argue that's a form of of um, assisted suicide almost because we're shortening that person's life by a day or two. Um, but at the same time, I don't have a problem with it. I'm, I'm helping them end their suffering. Right. And so, you know, but there's, there's a point at which I'm going to have a problem with it. Um, where I'm actively stopping the heart instead of alleviate, just alleviating suffering, I think is where I would draw the line personally. Um, but, uh, but yeah, I mean, I, I think a free market is going to, you know, on that continuum, there's going to be, there, there's going to be all sorts of options available to you from just providing comfort care that might slightly shorten your life to, um, you know, the further and further away you get from a naturally foreseeable death, the more responsibility, the market, uh, regulatory mechanisms are going to impose on you because you're going to be taking on more and more responsibility and liability the further yeah. away you get from that naturally foreseeable death. Yeah, absolutely. So, so again, that would make me think of situations where these outfits would have to be very engaged with the other people in this person's life also. Like there would be a liability right. and a responsibility towards their family members and friends and employers and whoever might be impacted by this person's death who could hold them accountable. So that's, you told a story well, earlier well, where that wasn't the case. And in a marketplace, yeah. I don't think that would exist. No, absolutely. I mean, look, if, if I owned one of these enterprises that was helping people uh, with assisted suicide, um, I, I would imagine that a best practice, one that would that would protect me most from liability is that I have relationships with all sorts of palliative care providers and even experimental ones that are, you know, I want to be able to say I did everything possible to connect these patients to um, to uh, options that would enhance their life. Um, and I want to be able to say that none of those options would work for the patient or they exhausted all their options before I 
administered that lethal injection, right? That would be the the best way I th- I would I could think of just off the top of my head to protect myself from liability from someone being able to come and say, hey, there was all these options. You hid it from my loved one. They you you didn't even let them try. You just went ahead and administered a lethal injection. You're just you know. I don't want that coming back on me because that would ruin my life. That would destroy me financially. That would, you know, I could end up in prison. Um, like, you know, I, I wouldn't want that. I, I would want um, to to protect myself from that. So for sure. Um, and and, yeah. and if and any person who is engaged in that sort of business uh, with true good intentions, um, a slight or oh, say it was even an oversight. I mean, that might ruin a person. Right, just just emotionally and mentally, because the yeah. the guilt they would be burdened with, right? Right. Um, right. Yeah. So definitely. Well, and, and there's and there's one more thing too I wanted to mention that 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 raises some ethical concerns with the state administering uh, made, and that is that a lot of provinces now are moving to um, default organ donation. In other words, unless you opt out, your organs belong to the state. So that there's a default ownership of your organs by the state as soon as you die. Now, um, if those organs are needed and, you know, the organization um, that is a default owner of your organs is also um, in high need of those organs, um, you can bet that the incentive structure is going to be such that that they're going to encourage uh, a medical assistance in death knowing that there's a kid down the hall that could really benefit from some of your organs. Um, so that, that's another issue. And of course, um, you know, there's the, the, the whole issue of the fact that it's funded by extorted money, which, you know, hardly needs to be said, um, that, that makes us all in some way complicit in this program, even if we are conscientious objectors to it, even if we don't agree with it and we would never put money into, um, into an enterprise or a charity that kills people um, because it's against our religious or our fundamental values. While we, we're we're tied into that organization, whether we like it or not, we're made complicit in the deaths of people that uh, we don't want to see die, that we want to see get support. Yeah, 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 definitely, uh, definitely a tough one. Um, I, as far as I know, right now, the I was just reading this morning that uh they have put the expansion of this on on hold for now so i'm not sure when when they plan to address it again but uh well i guess that's <laughs> that's uh helpful but uh you know it's just it's just a matter of time you know someone will make a constitutional challenge um and and there will be maybe a fringe case of someone who suffers from severe mental health issues that is incurable that that creates all sorts of suffering where you could make a reasonable case that yeah I should be able to end my suffering um and and it, you know in which case the supreme you know the the right decision would be autonomy always yeah. but the problem is that um you know the problem here is that state administered made has absolutely nothing to do with autonomy it has everything to do with the absence of autonomy that makes made um, a, a demand in, yeah. in this country, right? And so, you know, so sure, let's, you know, but, you know, at the same time, look, should you have the right to to kill yourself to to get out of the immiserating conditions that the state puts you in? 
Certainly. But I have a real issue with the state then being the one that, that administers it. So, uh, you know, the, the right Supreme Court decision would be to allow people to do it, but to prohibit the state from doing it, yeah. uh, I think. But. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Well, yeah, let me uh, let's switch gears a little bit, because uh, just like a chance to get caught up with you, you, you mentioned sure. you're looking at doing some other projects uh, over the next year or so. What do you have in mind? Yeah, well, I'm, it's still up in the air. You know, I've got uh, I got kind of a list of, of things I'd, I'd like to do. Um, you know, restart up a podcast is probably one of the things on my agenda. Uh, I want to do more writing. I, I've got a couple of, of um, book or at least um, paper ideas. Uh, you know, on my to-do list for the last couple of years has been a paper uh, that um, has to do with libertarian firefighting. You know, there, there hasn't really been a lot written on libertarian firefighting. What would firefighting look like in a free market? What's the real history of firefighting? You know, the real history is that it emerged from market conditions. It was run by insurance companies initially. You know, they saw an opportunity to offload the, the responsibility of fighting fires to municipal governments. And, um, you know, so since then, it's kind of been in the purview. So, you know, I had had an offer, uh, talked to Walter Block about co-authoring a paper on that. So th- that's something I want to get started on. That's a great idea. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And then, you know, there, I have kind of an, an idea for the book, you know, a book that was very intri- um, kind of impactful to me was, uh, Christopher Hitchens book called God is not great. How religion ruins everything. And, um, I would like to do uh, a book in the same vein called the state is not great. How statism ruins everything. And, um, and just go through all the ways in which basically just enumerate the ways in which, which this belief in a non-corporeal kind of almost supernatural entity called the state, um, really destroys lives and destroys culture and destroys the economy and destroys all these things. So, uh, you could imagine a lot of chapters in that book. So that's something I might, uh, plug away at, uh, over the next year as well. Yeah. Right on. That reminds me, there was one there was a book, uh, and I have it here somewhere. It's and they made a good, fairly good documentary out of it. It was called the the corporation. I mean, it was a well made documentary. I didn't agree with a lot of the stuff, but uh, and it talked about how you know it did kind of a psychological analysis of what a corporation is, right? And how right. you know basically it was trying to prove that these corporations are heartless and blah blah blah. And I remember watching it sure. and thinking, this is exactly the template you would take and apply to the state also because it's, it's, uh, you know, it's the exact same, same sort of thing where the, you know, the people in there don't really, well, like we talk about incentive structures, the incentive structure in the government is never in the right place for, to, for people to get good value from, for the services they're paying for. So. Right. Right. And, and, you know, again, it's, it's one of those things where it's difficult to, you know, the, the, the dimwit view, I guess, would be that we need to, it's all Justin Trudeau's fault, right? He's ruining everything. Yeah, yeah. And if, if we just had the right guy in there, if we had old Tim in there, things would get a lot better, right? <laughs> yeah. Well, they, they might, but you know, it wouldn't be because of, it because of what I was having the government do. It would be because of the ways I was like restraining it or repealing it. If, if, to the degree I could, but the real, so, so, you know, I, I do this thought experiment where, okay, let's take the example of my mom where we have this nurse offer this, what I consider a horrendous thing in a sense, 
of here we can help kill her if, if that'll, that'll yeah. help you guys right um well i can't really blame that nurse she works in a kind of this environment that incentivizes her to do that i can't blame her manager because again that manager and her policies you know make the hang on one sec this my dog is <laughs> i i can't blame you know i, I can't blame uh the manager i can't blame um you know the 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 um De- the, the minister of health even right because he's got a mandate to provide provincial health care and and you know and i can't blame the premier or the party in power because again they have a, a mandate from all these people um from from the voters to do what they're doing right so who do i blame if i'm looking to place blame uh it's hard to do can i blame my neighbor next door who believes that healthcare ought to be a right and universal because they're the ones that are demanding this stuff well i guess i can kind of blame them but at the same time look these people aren't putting much thought into it they're just getting what they get from the corporate media and from the propaganda the state puts out and so can i blame the propagandists well i can't really blame the propagandists because again there's a demand for them and they're 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 doing what they genuinely believe is in the, the best interest and in trying to meet a demand and you know so again the, this whole idea of the, the, every all these bad results and negative things that have happened all along the line are occurring because of bad ideas. They're built on a substrate of bad ideas, and it's those bad ideas, it's those supernatural, uh, illogical, irrational beliefs that from whence all these from whence emerges this nurse offering maid services to my suffering mom rather than providing a maximizing her value, right? Maximizing the value she could get out of healthcare. So, so that's what we have to change. And, and, you know, if I was going to write a book called how statism ruins everything, it, it would be tying all those pieces together and talking about how, um, how it's these ideas themselves that are the issue. And again, as a, a Christian lad, I was taught to hate this, hate sin, not the sinner. And so maybe it emerges um, from my Christian background as well is, is look, it, it doesn't help to blame people, to point fingers at people and say you're to blame. It, it, what helps is noticing the ideas and the system and the sin that this <laughs> whole system is based on and address that and help people um uh, I guess, divorce themselves of that sin and become born again as a libertarian or something like that. <laughs> yeah, right on. Okay, Tim. Well, tell uh, tell the listeners where they can uh, follow you and, and see some of the other stuff you got going on. Sure. Well, everything I have, my uh, YouTube, my um, my Twitter, and my writings can all be found at timmoen.net. So if you go to timmoen, M-O-E-N.net, um, you can find it, and hopefully by the time this is uh, posted, my article will be up there. You can you can also go on my website and subscribe to my mailing list, and um, as soon as the article drops, you'll get a notification and, and a link to that article. So, um, yeah, thanks for having me on, Darcy. Glad to see you out there uh, in the trenches going again, and look forward to many more conversations with you. Yeah, no, this was great. Thanks a lot, Tim. That was Tim Mowen firefighter, paramedic, and liberty expert. You can check out his stuff at timmoen, T-I-M-M-O-E-N dot net. And if you like the Darcy Jarreau podcast, subscribe on Substack. <laughs>